Hello, everyone. This is Gail Brandeis, and you have joined me at Teferit Talk. I'm the editor-in-chief of Teferit Journal, which is a magazine dedicated to promoting tolerance and compassion through literature and art, which is something I think we need more than ever these days. Our spring issue was just released this week. You can check it out at teferitjournal.org. It's filled with really gorgeous essays and poetry and fiction and art. I think you'll love it. So if you go to teferitjournal.org, you can check it out. And today at Teferit Talk, we're so delighted to have a novelist and literary legend, Homa Wolitzer, with us. Homa is the author of 14 novels for young people and adults, and her latest is An Available Man. She's also written a book about writing called The Company of Writers, and I know that she's going to impart some really great wisdom about writing today. Welcome, Homa. It's, it's such a treat to have you here. We're friends on Facebook, but this is the I first know. time we've and ever now met there's a voice, voice to voice. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm just so delighted to have the chance to talk with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for asking me, um, Of course. So I know that you started writing when you were a child. You published a story when you were nine years old, but then you took a little bit of a break. You um, didn't start publishing short fiction again until your 30s and published your first novel when you were 44. So you've been called a late bloomer, but you did start very young. And I would love to hear about your evolution as a writer, if you could share some of your journey with us about your writing life. Well, if we go back to childhood, I wrote really bad poetry about everything (laughs) I supposedly knew, like being blind, being a refugee. Uh, It was just amazing. And... um, And I published my very first poem in something called the Junior Inspectors Club, which was sponsored by the Department of Sanitation. And it was a mimeograph journal. (laughs) And my mother and I were invited down to the Department of Sanitation to shake hands with someone and receive some sort of award. And as we went down the street, the streets were lined with garbage trucks, which seemed almost like... (laughs) a military event. It was really wonderful. Wow. My mother took me out for something afterwards. So there were many rewards to writing. But uh, unfortunately, uh, life intervened. And as you said, I didn't publish another thing until I was in my mid-30s. And what inspired you to start writing and publishing again? Well, I got lucky. I actually got lucky. Um, I wrote a short story. I didn't even know if it really was a short story. And I knew someone who was an art critic. And my husband actually suggested I show him the story and he'd give me his opinion. And he put the story in his pocket. And he went to a party where he met a literary agent named Shirley Fisher, who was Steinbeck's agent at the time. And she called me the next day and introduced herself and said, I'd like to represent you on the basis of this story, which she then later sold to the Saturday Evening Post. And uh, I was able to buy my first car with the money that I received for that. Wow, that's fantastic. It was, and I felt extremely hopeful 
but I didn't publish another story for three years. And then it was to a small literary magazine, and I realized I wasn't really in it for the money, which was just as well. <laughs> yeah. But how, how incredible to be able to buy a car with your first published story. That's not something many writers can claim. And well, it was a long time ago, and cars were a lot cheaper. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that's... <laughs> That story was recently republished in the Saturday Evening Post, wasn't it? Yes, online. Um, My daughter pointed that out to me. I was so surprised because it's many, many years. It I came out it in 1966. So oh, thanks. Yeah, today a woman went mad in the supermarket, which is one of the best titles I think I may have ever heard. And one I can relate to, I, d- I don't know if I should share this sidebar, but my one kind of public nervous breakdown happened in a, a supermarket. It was a, a full nervous breakdown, but I, um, I guess I'll tell the story. I was a young mother, very young mother, 22. My child was, I don't know, maybe he was one or two, so I was a little bit older. And we were at the local grocery store, and I was with my husband and my son, and I wandered off to the fresh pasta aisle, which was kind of a new thing. Fresh pasta was was new to supermarkets at the time. And there were some other mothers who were much older than me and seemed so much more sophisticated. And I suddenly felt very um, intimidated by them. And I didn't know who I was anymore or what I wanted out of life. And I left the supermarket with my, my husband and child didn't know where I had gone and tried to figure out what is it that I want for myself in my life and went next door to the, um, the drugstore that's, and bought a pint of ice cream and ate it with my fingers, and that was the way I got over my, my little. That's an even better story than mine. That's a, that's a better story <laughs> than mine, Gail. I have to say, it's a wonderful. It should be written. <laughs> Maybe I should not write just that told. One. And uh, but your story is wonderful, and from the beginning, from that story, your use of such telling and vivid detail is right there. And your work is just so deeply human. I, I love that about your work. It's so warm. It's so authentic. And you've written you know, 14 books. And I wonder, do you have a similar process with each book? Do you start with character or setting? Or is each book a different process for you? Uh, I am occasionally asked where I get my ideas. And I say, I get characters. And they tell me their ideas. The stories always start with character, with a voice in my head of the character. Not necessarily does it always turn out to be a first-person voice in the narrative. Uh, Sometimes it does. But I can actually envision the person um, down to every little physical uh, asset or flaw and, and almost hear their voices. And therefore, when I'm finished with the book, I feel as if I've grown to know the people I'm writing about. So I always feel a little bereft when I'm done. I feel as if I've I have lost them in a way. Too. You do? Yeah, it, it's such, I do. It's a lonely feeling finishing a book after spending time with characters I've grown to love. Uh, I can completely relate to that feeling. It's as if a friend has moved character- away. Yes, yes, and and I can't seem to access them unless I write about them. So they're just they're just gone. Have you ever done a sequel? I 
I did. I did a sequel to my first novel, and I really wrote it for myself during um, National Novel Writing Month, not thinking I would ever share it with anyone. I just wanted to have a reunion with my characters. And I mentioned that enough that people were curious about it, so I put it out as a, an ebook, um, which I wasn't planning to do. But I was so grateful to have a little family reunion with those characters. Yeah, I've done two sequels because I just missed the characters. Or maybe I just yeah. didn't have any new ones. <laughs> well, your character, your main character in a, Available Man, your most recent novel, is wonderful. And I know you brought a portion of the novel to read with you. We would love to hear okay. some of your um, your work and your uh, voice. This is somewhere in the middle of the novel, so I'll tell you a little bit about the character. Edward Schuyler is a 62-year-old middle school science teacher whose wife, B has died, leaving him bereft. When his stepchildren place a personals ad on his behalf, he's horrified at first, but after several lonely months, he contacts one of the women who responded to the ad and makes a date with her. And this is a sort of condensed version of that chapter. Karen Leslie was sitting at the bar in the paper moon, drinking a martini when he got there. He knew who she was by the way she turned to look at him, raising an eyebrow in appraisal. Her crossed legs were long and muscular. He went over and shook her hand like a business acquaintance. She was good-looking in a hard-edged female action figure sort of way. Walking behind her and the hostess to the table, Edward realized that the two women were almost interchangeable with their artful makeup and twitching short black skirts. They had the same self-possessed carriage, too, but only one of them was carrying menus. They sat down, and Karen said, So who are you? The question caught him by surprise. He'd already told her about himself in their email exchange, his marriage and widowhood, his job, the stepchildren, but maybe all that was only the dating equivalent of giving his name, rank, and serial number. He'd grown to be fairly confident with women, whether or not there was sexual tension between them. There was tension at this table, but he wasn't sure of its nature. Suddenly, he wasn't sure of anything, least of all what he was doing there. I'm heartbroken, he might have said, and I'm horny. There was an icebreaker for you. Instead, he caught the eye of the waiter and ordered two martinis. In his head, B whispered, you are what you are, Edward, as if she were giving him dating pointers from beyond. I guess I'm just a guy trying to make a good impression, he told Karen Leslie. What about you? Let me see, she began. I'm a fiscal conservative. I've been divorced twice. My oldest son doesn't talk to me. Should we look at the menus? I'm starving. Sure, he said, but she had already raised and opened hers so that her face was hidden. He could still see the pale shadow of her cleavage, that sweet place. Her fingernails were long and crimson. This was a mistake. He didn't like her. She was cold and tough, and yet he wanted her. Or the hostess, or another woman, blonde and chubby, sitting at the bar, clinking glasses with a friend. Jesus. I'll have the striped bass, Karen Leslie said. They got through dinner discovering that they didn't care for any of the same movies or music or books. If they were a couple, Edward thought, they would always cancel out each other's vote. And if one of those matchmaking services had set them up, they'd have just cause for a refund, if not a lawsuit. But his own cynicism disturbed him. B used to say that he had a gift for bringing out the best in people, a natural empathy, 
Had he lost that when he lost her? What happened between you and your son, he asked Karen. He's decided to be gay, she said. That's not really a decision, Edward said. She clicked her fingernails against the side of her espresso cup for a moment, and then she said, you don't do this very often, do you? Have dinner, he said, nearly every night. Funny, she said mirthlessly. So he'd blown it. At least they'd come to the restaurant in separate cars and could part ways without too much discomfort. In the parking lot of the Paper Moon, Edward walked Karen Leslie to her BMW. This was nice, he found himself saying as she pressed the remote to unlock the doors. The headlights blinked and the horn beeped and he leaned over to kiss her cheek. He almost lost his balance when she grabbed the lapels of his jacket and pulled him toward her, crushing her mouth against his tongue, teeth, pelvis, the works. Then she released him just as quickly, slid into the driver's seat, and asked if he wanted to get in beside her or follow her home. Edward stood there, regaining his breath, his equilibrium, and wondering why he didn't feel elated, at least below the belt. He patted the roof of the car and said, Karen, thank you. But you're right, I am still new at this, and I'm not quite ready yet. When she slammed the door and sped away, he inhaled a lungful of exhaust as if it were pure oxygen. And that's the end of that chapter. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. What a treat. You're very welcome. And I think that that is such a perfect example of your work because it's such a mix of humor and Heart, heartache and just deep authenticity and I, I really love how you <clears throat> excuse me weave humor into your work and I wonder if that's intentional it's, you know, it's often said that writing comedy is so much harder than writing tragedy and I don't know whether you have any tips for writing comedy or if it's just how your voice naturally emerges when you write I think I was raised by parents who thought a lot of things were very funny. Even And I grew up mm-hmm. during the Depression when a lot of things weren't funny. But I remember so much mm-hmm. laughter. And it may be part of the Jewish environment, this two-sided coin of tragedy and comedy all the time. But I mm-hmm. always found humor in a lot of situations. I remember even going to a funeral once and... I have to say it wasn't someone close to me, so I wasn't grieving, but it was a sad occasion. Mm -hmm. We were at the graveside, and it started to rain, and then umbrellas began to pop up, and a woman, a tiny little old woman had one that had Mickey Mouse ears on it, so that was sort of (laughs) funny, and then somebody raised an umbrella over the rabbi as he was speaking, and it said, Channel 13 covers the best, and I lost it. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that that just made me think of that wonderful old scene from Mary Tyler Moore where she laughs during Chuckles the Clown funeral. Oh, I, I, I have that on tape. I have that on tape. I loved it. It's hilarious. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> well, you mentioned your family and your daughters are both in the arts. Your daughter Meg is also an acclaimed novelist and your daughter Nancy is an artist and an editor and I'm wondering whether you encouraged them to live creative literary lives or if they're just following in your wonderful example. Partly it's by example I guess they uh, Nancy has often said 
my older daughter has often said that the sound of my typewriter, that's how long ago this was, the, the clicking of the keys of my typewriter were a comfort to her when she was going to sleep. Mm-hmm. And um, Meg began writing at a very early age, and I just loved what she did. She she clearly had talent, precocious talent, really. And one day she complained to me bitterly. She said, oh, you like everything I do. Uh, as if you know, I wasn't being properly critical. But then, when I was critical, she burst into tears. So I had to find some Aww. happy balance there. But um, I think she language was very important to her, as it was to me, very early on. She began speaking as a as a little baby, really. I think she was so eager to to be heard <laughs> and and to use language. And uh, so it may be in the genes. I don't know. Nice. I know that you've been part of many different writers' communities yourself, um, our illustrious founder and uh, publisher of Tefera, Donna Bearstein, met you through Breadloaf Writers' Conference, I believe. Yes, and I was there for about 20 years, 20 wonderful. summers, I'm I should sure you say. Have many, you must have many stories. I know that Breadloaf is such a storied place. I don't know whether you'd you'd like to share any of those with us. Well, I had made some wonderful friends there, some of whom are gone now, like John Gardner and Howard Nemiroff and Stanley Elkin, just to name a few, and Maxine Kuman, uh, who was a very good friend. And I still have friends there, and Nancy Willard, who died very recently. Uh, we had wonderful <laughs> times there. We we just had such a good time. Um, I went there first as a scholar, and then I went there as a fellow. And then John Gardner, who was teaching, he was on faculty, his car broke down on the way there. And Francine Prose and I, who I believe were both fellows that year, were asked to take over his workshop. And I had never taught before in my life. (laughs) And we co-taught the class, and I loved the experience. I just thought it was the most wonderful experience. I had a really good time. And uh, when I had my uh, another novel out, I had to have two published books to be on faculty. I was invited back to teach. And I did for just a number of years. And it was pretty hard when it was over. But I also said, gee, it's really great to to quit while you're ahead, not to come up here with your attendant and your walker. You know, to leave, well, you can walk out of there. And so that it was all right. But I've had a lot of interesting experiences and met a lot of people. I've done teaching at various places after Breadloaf, too, at uh, Columbia University and uh, the Iowa Writers Workshop and NYU, and then short stints in many places like Alaska. I was in Alaska three times teaching. Oh, nice. Wonderful. I taught at a writer's conference in Homer um, a few years ago, the um, Ketchumak Bay Writer's Conference. I don't know whether that's one that you were No, I was at The Last Frontier. Mine was called The Last Frontier. Okay. Wonderful. Did you have a good time? I did. Did you have a good time? Beautiful. I had. Yes, yes, I loved it. I had to race home because my oldest son was graduating from high school. At the end, so I wasn't able to stay and explore very often. But they did take us out on a boat one day, and we were able to see puffins and ot- otters, and it was just magical. 
I almost got uh, attacked by a moose. Um, <laughs> it was a beautiful, beautiful writer's conference. Yeah, I had and a very I good time, too. Oh, good, good. I know you've inspired so many writers, and I love that you wrote this book, The Company of Writers, Fiction Workshops and Thoughts on the Writing Life, in which you really empower people to start their own writers' groups and workshops. And I, it might be hard to distill that book into to, you know, a nugget of advice, but if there's someone out there searching for writing community and is feeling isolated, what would you recommend? Finding other people who feel the same way, who live nearby, and getting together and sharing your work and, and sharing your criticism and, and also talking about books you're reading. Um, I just feel you're less... I, I have to say that I do say in this book that writing is a solitary occupation, but it's not necessarily a lonely one uh, because your mm-hmm. head is so filled with your characters and, and everything that's yeah. going on in their lives. But I think that some literary company is comforting and helpful i don't know that you know Mm -hmm. i can't answer can writing be taught i think it probably can only be taught to writers people who have Mm -hmm. some talent to do it i mean tony morrison has said Mm -hmm. you need to be a writer you need talent and a job which always seemed like very (laughs) sound advice to me especially after, (laughs) after the second short story went to a tiny magazine um and I think that that's good advice. But I think finding each other and uh, forming your own group. And I found that people who I did teach at these um, rather short programs, like Breadloaf, which was 12 days, who came to be very fond mm-hmm. of each other and dependent upon one another's opinion, and then went off and one went to Massachusetts and one went to Wisconsin and another one went to New Jersey, that they really missed that feeling of community. And so I would suggest mm-hmm. that they find other people, you know, within walking or driving distance. Mm-hmm. And form Wonderful. Their groups. Yes. Yeah, I um I teach in two different low residency MFA programs and I know that a lot of students and faculty have some trouble readjusting to real life after the 10-day residencies are over. And then especially, too, when students graduate, many of them have trouble finding community again and feel like they're flailing around as writers. And once once you find that community or even that one other reader you can connect with, it's such a lifeline. And I, I, I agree. I'm so grateful for my own community. Uh, you, um, you wrote a really beautiful essay about writing in the anthology A Story Larger Than Her Own, which is essays by women writers. And in it, you mentioned that you grappled with writer's block for 12 years. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit and if you have any advice for writers out there who might be struggling with writer's block now. I'm sure they'd appreciate hearing how you got through that period. Um, actually, I don't. I, I offered some advice in my book, The Company of Writers, but I don't necessarily uh, use that sort of help myself. When I was stuck, I was just stuck. And I found all sorts of quotes about it. One from Kurt Vonnegut, which I used as an epigraph to that chapter, which was, God lets you write, he also lets you not write. And I felt hmm. that that was 
that seemed right to me. Part of it was my life. I, there were a lot of things going on in my life. There was illness. There was death. Um, but I don't think that's really an excuse. If you're not writing, it's your fault. I once asked Grace Paley if she didn't write a novel, if she only wrote short stories because she had spent so much of her life uh, resisting uh, political, terrible political movements and, and being a very political mm-hmm. person. And she said, no, I never wrote a novel because I couldn't. I tried, mm-hmm. and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. I have to be honest about it, I have to say no matter how much life interfered with my writing, something, some spark had gone out in me during that period. I don't think it was a question of being distracted or not having enough time. Uh, I tell... Mm-hmm people who are stuck that they might try uh, doing exercises, but I also believe exercising belongs in a gym, not not at the desk. And <laughs> I, I really don't have any good advice. I would hope that I'd be writing that I'd keel over at my desk. And then for a long time, mm-hmm. I thought I'd just keel over and not at my desk. And mm-hmm. lately, I haven't written any fiction for quite a while, but I began writing poetry, which is a very or poems, I should say, and um, back to my childhood uh, ambition about writing. Well, that's beautiful. Could you share one of your poems with us, please? Okay. All right. Um, I wrote. I wrote one. Um, one of the first that was published in New Letters, and it's called The Thing. And again, what's interesting to me about it, which my daughter Meg pointed out was that you would write a poem with a character in it. And I realized that it was just, you know, a little step away from fiction. And it also has a scene in it. It's called The Thing. Dad, the family clown, has fallen down in the street. The thing he feared more than death or public speaking was so he said often and always as if for the first time. Now strangers form a living wall around him and murmur sympathy, the thing he craved when he was upright and in one piece. They call him Sir and Pops and Honey and even Dave once they pry that name from his pocket, the thing with keys and coins and the flip-top phone that makes his grandson roll his eyes. You'll be all right, Pops. Dave, can you hear me? Don't move now, Honey, like the old wedding night joke that used to be so funny. Later, they will ask him to count backward by sevens and who is the president. But no one says, are you comfortable, sir? For which he's had the punchline, I make a living, readied all his life. They wonder if there's someone they can call. And he thinks of mother, ours and his own, both fallen into earth long years before. Dave, they shout, can you hear me? And he says, here's the thing. Oh, thank you. I, I'm so excited that you're writing poetry now, and I, I'm eager to read more of it. Do you plan to release a poetry collection at some point? No, I don't think I'm going to live long enough to have a collection, for sure. <laughs> and, I don't, and, I, and I don't think there's um, anything that makes them part of a whole, except that I wrote them. Uh, and I'm not even <laughs> sure they're good enough. Uh, and I, I feel very much like a novice. At poetry, it's really oh. amazing. You start from the beginning again with yeah. with a new discipline. Uh, I felt much more confident about writing fiction, and even then, you know, I would question 
you write a line and say either this is very good or it's terrible, and you almost can't tell, <laughs> and that's where the writing community comes in. Yeah, you have people yes, you can think- trust who. Yes, it can be so hard for us to see our own work clearly, I think. And when we have readers we can trust, it makes such a huge difference. And, and I, even I if they re- how... the reviewed, you can't be sure if you believe the reviewer, reviewer's praise any more than you can, you know, the very harsh criticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sadly with reviews, I've found that the harsh criticism sticks in my brain more firmly than the praise does. I wish I could remember the praise as easily. Well, I think on my deathbed, so, I'm going to remember few the worst review. Stick their way in there. Right. It's like the, um, uh-huh. what is that uh, short story about uh, Granny Weatherall? When she's on her deathbed, she remembers a man who rejected her, oh, who left I, her at I the altar. I that one. <laughs> oh, and, and it's a, I'm sure that I'm going to remember the worst thing ever said about me on my deathbed. Oh, dear. <laughs> Don't well, I sound cheerful? I <laughs> Yeah, I think awareness of death is such a powerful motivator for us as writers, and you acknowledge that in this one essay in the anthology, where you have this wonderful list at the end of things that you know, and the first one is all art is against death, and I think that's that's so perfect because that all art is against the ultimate silence. We're kind of speaking and raging against that through using our voice and creating art and. I really love that you acknowledge that so directly in this piece. Without mortality, I wonder if there would be any art. Don't you? Yeah, that's a really good question. That's a very, very good question. It's not that you have to write about it, but that you're writing against it. Yes, yes. Just that, that awareness of it, I think, fuels us so powerfully. And... Yeah, it's it's the ultimate motivator, for sure. The whole list is wonderful at the end of this essay, but one of the the items that really jumped out at me was everyone's inner life is interesting, which I love because I think it speaks not only to writing, but to being a compassionate human being. I think that right now in our crazy political climate there's so much dehumanization happening of people and in acknowledging that every person's inner life is interesting it's acknowledging and everyone everyone's matters humanity. and everyone yeah. matters that's really true yeah. too I, a psychiatrist friend of mine to whom i said this once that i believe everyone has an interesting interior life she said no they don't <laughs> of course, she was listening to people's the stories from people's interior lives all week long, and I, she did not find them interesting. But I do, or maybe it's just a defense of the domestic content of my own novels that um, I have to write what I know, and because I lived a domestic mm-hmm. life in the years preceding my publication and my writing, uh, I used a lot of that material, and I defend it by saying I think that what happens in bedrooms and kitchens matters greatly, matters almost as much as what happens in boardrooms and staterooms. 
it it could be just defensive on my part, but I think I really believe it. I think, and I also think that all politics, even if you're you don't write about political uh, matters, you are in a way when you're writing a domestic novel because politics begin at home in the relationships between yeah. the members of a family and the family and their neighbors and and people in a community and so forth and it keeps branching out so it is political i think you know all the decisions you make in your life are in some are to some extent political yes yes going back to the domestic you write about jello in this essay and how jello appeared a lot in your early fiction because of your life as a mother at home and one of the items on your list is about how cello is a better metaphor than dessert. And well, I had to learn it that. Makes me wonder. I had to learn that. <laughs> Go ahead. Do you have a favorite fl- flavor of cello, and what is its metaphorical message for you? Well, I used to make gel. I it wasn't a question of flavors; it was a question of doing really complicated jello structures. I could make diagonal uh-huh. stripes. I could make diagonal oh, wow. stripe, diagonally striped jello. And I would tell people if I gave a talk about writing that if anybody wanted the recipe they could come up afterwards and get it. But all it really is is slanting your glasses and the shelves in the door of your refrigerator and pouring one layer in uh-huh. and when that sets pouring another layer in as the glasses are on their side. But I was cured of my jello obsession when Given a dinner party, I was unmolding a, a very fancy uh, concoction of jello with all sorts of fruit and things in it, and it slithered down the drain of my sink. Oh, no. And I remember putting my hand in afterwards, trying to retrieve it. And if you ever gla- grabbed a, a handful of jello, you might never want to eat it again. <laughs> um, but it, it served as a perfect metaphor because it was translucent, it was colorful. It was mysterious. It had layers. And therefore, it was a metaphor for fiction, in a way. And it was a metaphor for my domestic life. Oh, well, I think that's a beautiful and delicious note to end on. Uh, Thank you so much, Hilma. Is there anything, any last words you'd like to impart before we say goodbye? Yes, I just wanted to say I think your little boy Asher is adorable <laughs> and wise and beautiful and very and thank you so much for inviting me to do this, Gail. I really appreciate oh, it. My 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 great deep pleasure and thank you. Asher is all of those things. <laughs> he I really so appreciate is. Appreciate you bringing him up. He's such a, a gift to my life. And I enjoy looking at his pictures. To all of us. Thank you so much. And thank you, Gail. I look forward to to reading more of your poems and just having you in the world is a beautiful thing. So thank you, thank you so again much. for gracing us with your presence. And I hope we'll get to talk again someday, certainly Me online, too. but hope, hopefully in person one day. I would love that, Gail. Thank All you. Right. Yes. Me too. Me too. Thank you so much. And, yes, my deepest thanks to Hilma Wolitzer for joining us today and also to our fabulous producer, R.J. Jeffries. Again, I'm Gail Brandeis, and this has been Teferit Talk. 
please join us again on June 27th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time when we'll be joined by the ever-inspiring Bill Keenauer. And again, be sure to check out our spring issue of Teferit at teferitjournal.org where you can buy the spring issue for $4.99 or sign up for a full year's subscription. It's always filled with powerful, inspiring work. So now, on behalf of Tefera Talk, here's a brief word from Donna Berstein, founder and publisher of Tefera Journal. Good night. Hi, this is Donna Berstein, founder and publisher of Tefera Journal. We first began to publish authors of different faiths and cultural backgrounds in 2004. I had recently been introduced to the word Tefera, which means heart, compassion, and reconciliation of opposites. Thirteen years after the launch of our magazine, our world finds itself perhaps more divisive than ever. Reconciliation of seeming opposites is key. I truly hope you enjoy these new Teferit Talk interviews as much as we do. I hope, too, that you will visit our website at teferitjournal.com to subscribe to our quarterly magazine, participate in our writing retreats and community forums, or donate to our mission of promoting tolerance through literature and art. Thank you so much for listening.